All right, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is a challenging book. I got to admit, it, it is a very challenging book. How many would agree that the book of Revelation is a very challenging book? All right, that, that, then I know who's been reading it. I know who's read it in the past. If you've not read it at all, this is your first opportunity to do that, you're going to find out that this book is extremely challenging. And one of the reasons why it is so challenging is because there is so much symbolism in the book of Revelation. The symbolism is incredible. Uh, there are almost 300 symbols in this one book of 22 chapters alone. And you and I will not be able to figure out most of them, I'm sure. Now, there's some with historical significance. There's some that we will wrestle with from now to the end of time. But I want you to keep this in mind when we deal with the symbols in the book of Revelation. And that is this, that they are there to make a dramatic, give you a dramatic picture of an historical reality. I do want you to be aware of that. For instance, and, and I, I could say this in my own words, but I love what Merrill Tenney says in giving one simple illustration of this. Undoubtedly, many parts of Revelation are symbolic in nature, but the symbols are intended to carry a definite meaning. For instance, you'll know that later on in the book of Revelation, you and I will read the picture of an angel binding Satan. And cast him into the bottomless pit. Now, Satan may not uh, mean that the, the, the picture of the angel binding Satan may not mean that the devil is chained with literal iron links in a dungeon which has no floor. All right? Keep that in mind. But we can see that the material concept used as a medium of expression is of a secondary nature. It is designed to grab our attention and help us to see the reality and the truth of what he's saying. Are there going to be chains, yet iron chains? Doubt it. Is there going to be a dungeon with a bottomless floor? That's probably not what he's talking about. The reality of Satan being chained is that he does not have the opportunity by divine power for exercising his usual influence on the earth and its enforced absence from human affairs, his enforced absence will do away with many of the earth's evils when that happens. See, that's the point. And every time you come across a symbol... Uh, I know when I was a kid and I would read the book of Revelation, I would come across some symbols and I, I just couldn't understand them. For instance, the living creatures of chapter 4 were downright scary to me. The living creatures of chapter 4. The first living creature, verse 7 of chapter 4, was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. I didn't have any problem with that part of it. But verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. 
And that was scary. I couldn't understand what on earth that symbolism was to mean. So it's a very challenging book. Don't get hung up on the symbols. Move through it. Admit that they're dramatic portrayals of the reality of what God is teaching. So if you have a living creature that is full of eyes around and within, then you know that this creature sees everything. Everything. All right, that's the reality. Now, having said that, let's go to Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass or take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Now, I realize that most of the introductions to the books of the Bible tend to begin this way. And I don't know about you, but I tend to just skip over them very, very quickly because I want to get into the meat of what's being said. But I want you to see the very first verse here because most of us look at the revelation of Jesus Christ because that's how it starts, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we think of the book of Revelation as something that kind of hides, hides the mystery of God in his plan for the future when he is talking about revealing it to us. I also want you to see how important this book must be. A lot of people will take a book like this in the Bible and say, oh, that even shouldn't even be in the Bible. It probably wasn't written by John. John claims to be the author of this book. Verse 4, verse 9, he continues to talk about himself. The Apostle John is the author of this book under the inspiration of God himself. But notice, what it, notice how important this has got to be. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. So God gave Jesus Christ the revelation. And he gave him the revelation to show his servants things which must shortly take place. He used an angel in the process. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. That's pretty important. A lot of times in the Bible we don't read the details of God and how he reveals himself or manifests himself to us. Now, I want you to see verse 2. Now, who, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So John is bearing witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he, verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. He all, all and I just want to bring this to your attention. There's a phrase in verse 1 that these things must shortly take place, and there's a phrase in verse 3 that says the time is near. And one of the big questions that you and I have to ask in the book of Revelation is, when is all of what John is describing for us, when is it going to happen? Or has it already happened? 
Has it happened in the past? Is it continuing? Is it, has it started in the past? Is it continuing now? Or is it all going to happen in the future? And I say this to you because the two phrases, shortly take place and the time is near, don't necessarily talk about it happening just then and there, or tomorrow, or the next day. Both of those phrases talk about the fact that when these things are going to take place, they are going to happen very quickly, they're going to happen very swiftly, you and I aren't going to have a lot of time to think about it. And, for the time is near, refers to the fact that this is the next thing in God's agenda. So this is important stuff. And the Bible says, blessed are those who read and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And so there's a great blessing coming. If you're going to be using this in your daily Bible, you're going to be reading it through and, uh, and everything, there's a great blessing into those who read it and those who hear it. And what's the final command that God gives to us? The final command that he gives to us is that we are to keep. Everybody together, look at that. Keep those things which are written in it. How do you do that in the book of Revelation? When almost none of it really has to deal with you and I in a personal way. How do we do that? We keep it in mind. We use it to reflect upon the world in which we live. And let me, let me illustrate it this way. We are going to run into the Antichrist when we get to chapters 11 and 13 of the book of Revelation. The Antichrist is either the beast out of the sea, as some say, or he is the beast out of the earth, as some say. In John's epistles, the Antichrist word is used four times. He is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. He is the prince that shall come of Daniel chapter 9. He is the king of Daniel chapter 11. He is the false Christ of Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. And I want you all to put your thumb or your finger in Revelation and go back to 2 Thessalonians. And I want you to see that he is the lawless one of Paul's epistles. I want you to see this. I, I wasn't going to waste any time reading this today, but I want you to clearly see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 and following. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 and following. Uh, we'll actually start at verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. But the reason why I want to read this to you is because I don't know what it's going to take to whet your appetite to get into the book of Revelation. And I thought, this will do it. If nothing does it, this will do it. And all you need, I'm not going to make any commentary on this, but all you need to do is look at the world scene today. I'm not a sensationalist. I'm not a date setter. I'm not one who says, oh my goodness, things look really, really bad. I've, I've seen through church history how things look really bad. They get better, they look bad, they look better, they get bad, they look better. But I want to tell you, in my day and age, I've never seen what I have seen today. I have never seen what I have seen today. I have never seen a world that is hell-bent on legislating immorality. I have never seen it. I feel sorry for the people in Virginia 
Um, my son-in-law has a church in Virginia, in Dolphin, Virginia, and uh, the Virginia uh, government there is trying to uh, is trying to uh, is trying to pass a law that's going to affect every single church in the state of Virginia and set them up for possible litigation in court if they don't comply. It's a horrible thing. And it's a legislation of immorality. But you'll see what I mean here. This is a description of the Antichrist. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by the word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. No, it hasn't come yet. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. There are two descriptions of the Antichrist right there who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. And this is the good news and the bad news. For the bad news first... For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I would assume that that's the Holy Spirit who is restraining those who are doing their best to legislate immorality around the world. Not just in this country. It's bad enough here. But it's around the world. Now, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. I'd love to say, I know how this all ends, and I know that God wins. Okay? That's the good news. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, I'm watching the world scene. I'm watching the nation carefully to see how much we are lining up with what I'm seeing in this particular passage of Scripture. I'm 68 years old, and I've never, never, never seen anything like it. In all my life. But I just do want you to know that your defense and your security and your salvation in all of this is your relationship with the Lord, my relationship with the Lord, and our love of the truth. 
Okay? All right. Having said that, go back to Revelation chapter 1. Now, I think it's important to read verses 4 through 8. I will not make any commentary on this if I don't need to because I want to give you a strategy in looking through the book of Revelation. But let's read it. John chapter 1, um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's another symbolism, by the way. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Everybody together, amen. Don't you see the picture of redemption there? pretty clear. We stand solidly in that picture. Behold, look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, everybody together, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, having said that, one of the big challenges that you're going to have in the rest of the book is to determine the time span, the time span of this book. Let me begin by suggesting to you that the very first line in chapter 1 is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. What does the revelation mean in that first line? That does not refer to his second coming. That refers to God's plan that was given to Christ so that Christ could then convey it to the Apostle John through the angel. That's where it starts, but the revelation doesn't end there. In verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. They who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ in person. That's when Jesus comes back to this earth in person. And so the time span in the book of Revelation begins in John's time and doesn't end till Jesus returns to this earth. Now, having said that, you and I need to look at this whole book and see if there are any gaps in what is written here. Now, let me give you a key. In the, second, in the first chapter of John, after we have this beautiful description, uh, it's not a photograph, but it is a description, a beautiful description that we pick up in phrases and sentences in the next two chapters of Christ. It's a really great picture. It used to scare me when I was a kid too, especially when I would see that out of the mouth of the Lord was a sword. 
But I didn't understand the symbolism back then. I didn't understand that here is a picture of, of the Lord as a judge, you see. I didn't understand that. But I want you to see verse 18 and 19. I am he who lives, Jesus is speaking. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now look at verse 19, his personal instructions to John. Write the things which you have seen. Number one, the things that you have seen, that's past. Write the things which are, that's present, and write the things which will take place after this, that's future. And I'll tell you what most people do with the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is he's writing something that has occurred. He was probably on the Isle, he was on the Isle of Patmos, and most people assume that he's no longer on the Isle of Patmos when he writes this. So he's, the past is chapter 1. The present is chapters 2 and 3 when he writes letters to the seven churches of Asia. They're literal churches. They're on the map back in the time of the New Testament. And after these things in chapter 4 is the first phrase where most people will say, okay, this begins the future, chapter 4. The past, chapter 1, the letters to the seven churches, present time, and the future, chapter 4, all the way to chapter 22. Now, the big question you and I have to ask ourselves is this, and I'm going to throw this out, and I know this is technical, but the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. In, Romans chap in Revelation chapter 4, through the end of the book, are we dealing with the first century and the persecution of the church by the Roman Empire. Now, when you read it, you want to ask yourself that question. Number two, or are we looking at the course of history beginning with the persecution of the Roman Empire all the way to the second coming of Christ? That's number two. Or number three, in chapter four and following, are we dealing with a period of time that has not yet occurred, that hasn't been occurring in any way, shape, or form, called the tribulation period, which is composed of a seven-year period of time that the Bible describes in the book of Daniel, and in the book of Revelation, that's going to happen right before Jesus returns. A seven-year period of tribulation. So you got one of those three options. Those are the only three I see that a Bible believer can take. And Bible believers take all three of them. Is it the Roman persecution of the church in the first century? Is it the Roman persecution of the church that began in the first century? And then we have a discussion of that all through the history of the church to the present time. Or is it something that's going to happen called the, the tribulation period of seven years where the Antichrist is going to be pretty much in control of things? That's your question. That's your question. Okay. Now, a couple of other quick observations to make to get you ready for your study of the book of Revelation. There are actually four, there are many visions here, but they are, can be boiled down to four different visions, and I want you to see them. 
I want you to see them. The first vision is in chapter 1, verse 9, where John says, and let's read these two verses, that's all we have here. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. That's vision one. Where he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos. He was on the Isle of Patmos because he was sent there as punishment for his faith in Christ. And then the Roman government decided to let him come back to the shore. And uh, we assume at that point he begins to write the book of Revelation. The second vision is in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So he was on the Isle of Patmos, and now he sees a vision of a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, say, Come up hither, come up here, and I will show you things which must take to place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Then you're going to pass over judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment to the 17th chapter of Revelation. The series of judgments, the seven series, three seven series of judgments that culminates in the seven bold judgments. And after these seven bold judgments are given, and I, I, my position is that we're in the heart of the tribulation period at this point, we have this vision in verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels, one, seven angels were responsible for dealing out those judgments. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me, saying to me, Come and I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the king of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So she carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now I'm telling you, when you get to chapter 17, it gets intense. It gets really intense. Because God is willing to give to John details that are going to make it clear on what this world is going to look like. A one world government, by the way, what it's going to look like doesn't mean there's individual, no individual nations, but it means that every nation is under the sway of this one world government during the tribulation period. And then we have those fantastic passages of Scripture that talk about the fall of the world economically. We've got almost a whole chapter on how the world falls economically. Socially, immorally, it's incredible. And then we finally have this last vision 
which is in chapter 21. Chapter 21. Now, you and I know this, that there's a millennial reign in chapter 20, and in chapter 20 is the eternal state when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and I love this one. This is the best. Chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away into the in the spirit. That's how you can distinguish these overarching visions, because he's in the spirit. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. All right, now, most of us have known the Bible well enough to know that he's going to get into a discussion of the new heaven and the new earth at this point. And it pretty well is exciting. You know, having said that, if I were to give you application right away, but there's one thing else I want to do with you quickly, and just it'll only take a couple of minutes to do this. Go back to chapters 2 and 3, and I want to guide you just with a couple of quick comments on this. But if there's any application that we can make on this at this point, and that would clearly be that, you know, regardless of how bad things are, God is in control of every step of what happens in the book of Revelation because it is not someone's judgment against you. It's not like someone comes up to you and says, I have a beef with you, and I want you to punish for what you, be punished for what you've done, and I'm going to take you to court. The courtroom is in heaven. The courtroom is God in chapters 4 and 5, and the judgment comes from God himself on the earth. Wow. One of the questions we need to ask, by the way, before we get to the end of Revelation is, where will you and I be when all of this happens? That's a good question to ask. How many wanted the answer to that question? Where will you and I be? If you want an answer to that question, raise your hand. Where will I be when all this happens? All right. Okay. Now, I just want to say this to you. There are seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 that were given to the churches of Asia Minor. They represent all of the churches of the Roman Empire, and there's quite a few now, and they're growing by leaps and bounds. And by 300 A.D., there are going to be so many churches, it's unbelievable, until finally the Roman emperor decides that he's going to accept Christianity, and the Roman government will, it will, uh, will say that Christianity is, is official. But having said that, I want you to read these seven letters to the churches and I want you to notice that in each letter, we pull in that description of Christ in chapter 1. There is a description. We pull in some of that information into the letter so you and I understand that this is Christ speaking to us. And he's not just speaking to these seven historical churches. He's speaking to all of us down through the ages. We know because he links these churches with not just history... They're literal churches, but he links them with the second coming of Christ. So we know that some of our churches can be the Ephesus church was faithful. They've lost their first love, though. And in every one of these situations, they're record, they're, they're, for the most part, God commends them for things that they're doing right, 
And he says, nevertheless, or therefore, or be, I want you guys to know that there's still some things that we need to be concerned about. Nevertheless, I have this against you, he says to the first church. In Smyrna, he talks about good stuff, and then in the other churches, good stuff. I know your works, good. I have a few things against you. This is what you need to do, and make sure you read what that church needs to do. By the way, this is an interesting comment. I want you to notice how much these churches are struggling with sexual immorality. In our day and age, that's a big thing, isn't it? With homosexuality, I don't mean, I don't, you know, I'm not pulling any punches. God says homosexuality is wrong. And we have churches as we speak today who are struggling with it to try to figure out whether they want to accept it or not. That's one example. That's one example. But I want you to look at how much, how much of, a, of a problem that is. And then finally, and this is the last thing I want to share with you, you're going to read statements like this. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 11, you're going, in verse 10, you're going to read that, um, oh, in verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This passage of scripture has been used against the church to suggest that we hate Jewish people. Not at all. Not at all. You and I are not going to know the historical circumstances behind a lot of these things, but they're there. For instance, in this particular passage of Scripture, why does Jesus say that you, there are people who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan? Why? He says it because, here's the example, when Polycarp, who was a student of John, was condemned to death in the city of Smyrna, and he was burned at the stake... In Smyrna, the Jews brought wood to do it on the Sabbath day. Which proved they weren't really Jews. If you picked up a stick back in the wilderness on the Sabbath day, that was curtains for you, buddy. Just pretending. All right. Having said that, I'll give you one more. I could give you several more, but when you look at these and you say, I don't understand that, look at the lukewarm church, the Odysseans. A lot of people say this is really most of the church in our day and age. We got people in, in the church who claim to be say, saying, well, you know, we're wealthy, we don't need anything, we just need more money. Believe it or not, we have people saying that. Have you ever seen, have you ever, did you, are you aware of that? In, in the lukewarm church, it's a wealthy church, and the Laodicean church says, these things say the faithful and true. Verse 14 of chapter Revelation. I'm going to end with this. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. And you say, verse 17, I'm rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But because you are not cold or hot, Jesus says, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth. Now, that church is located in Laodicea. 
I was at Yellowstone National Park, and one of the most fascinating things to see at Yellowstone National Park at the northern end are the hot springs. They're all over the park, right? But the hot springs up at the upper end of the park are, as you see the water cascading down and all the deposits, it's just, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And you know, in the wintertime, people go into, mountain men used to go into Yellowstone National Park, Jim Bridger, all these mountain men used to go. You read a book one time on, uh, was it Jedediah Smith, I think it was, right? Used to go into Yellowstone National Park, and they'd spend the winters in Yellow National Park bathing in those hot springs, you see. Well, you and I know that warm water is not very tasteful. But the illustration that we have here is the Laodicean church that's sitting by all of these hot springs. And God says, listen, I'm going to make my point. You're going to see it clearly because you have a perfect example right in your community. You're lukewarm. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. that You're so distasteful. But anyway, you're going to find those historical illustrations. What again is the application? If I were to give you the application, we're to keep the words of this book, right? We're to keep the words of this book. And we are certainly to understand that in the end, who wins? God wins. Amen? (laughs) Amen. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would give us discerning, discerning minds so that as we look at these chapters in this book in our daily Bible reading, that you would help us to tuck them away so that we can be wise about what we see happening in the world around us. In your precious name we pray, Lord. Amen. Turn in your hymn book to 295 if you need it, and we'll sing together, Into My Heart. Into my heart, Lord Jesus. You know, the first part of that book talked about how Jesus redeems us from our sin. Through his personal sacrifice. Not through your good works. Not through anything that you can commend yourself to him for with. Will you come to Christ?